Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we promise not to talk about politics even a little bit. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. Live Science has some exciting news to report. A rare two-headed snake was discovered by a Florida house cat. Oh, yeah. It Ooh. would be in Florida, wouldn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this adorable little snake is named Dose. It has two brains, two throats, and one scaly body. And the cat's family was rudely introduced to the supernatural serpent about a month ago when their cat, Olive, dropped the critter on their living room floor, according to a Facebook post. (laughs) I like how they talk about the cat discovering it. Like it's, you know, going to the wild with its little Panama hat and its net on and everything. No, it tried to murder it and then just didn't. (laughs) You know, credit where it's due. And the cat decided to bring it to its own. Owners, which, mm-hmm. as we all know, is a sign of true love and affection from these little furry serial mm-hmm. killers that we keep <laughs> in our homes. This article reports that the family was bewildered to see that a small speckled snake with two heads attached to the same body, each one able to move its eyes, neck, and tongue independently. Wow. Kay Rogers, the cat's owner, said of the two-headed snake, his biggest problem is eating. We are trying lots of things, but he has trouble coordinating his two heads. <laughs> The condition is known as bicephaly. It's an uncommon abnormality which occurs during embryonic development. The condition has appeared in other animals, even deer and porpoises. (laughs) And according to the article, humans seem to encounter live bicephalic snakes about once a year, whether brought to our attention by house cats or other means. In 2019, there was a bicephalic baby rattlesnake named Double Dave that turned up in New Jersey, (laughs) and a two-headed viper slithered onto a family's property in Virginia in 2018. So, Like a viper's not bad enough. It's got to be two-headed. At least you know that it's going to have trouble coordinating itself if it's got two heads, two brains, eyes that move independently, and tongues. So, you know... (laughs) And it, yeah, it's because the competing brains make it harder to do things like catch prey or flee predators. And so they usually end up in the custody of wildlife experts, including Dose, who is now cared for by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Yeah, I really want to see the two-headed porpoise. That's intrigued me. Yeah, wow. Well, apparently there was also a worm that grew a second face on its butt. I did not mm. dare to click on that link. <laughs> but um, if you go to LifeScience.com, they can send you all over the place to investigate this phenomenon further. I don't know. I think that would probably just look like a worm. Like, I'm I'm not real familiar with worm faces, but I don't think I'd recognize one. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, speaking of nature finding a way, uh, (laughs) this article comes to us from knowablemagazine.org, and it is titled The Ungentle Joy of spider sex. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I'll throw a little uh, content warning up there that this is both about spiders and about sex. And <laughs> Whichever one scares re- you more. <laughs> exactly. And uh, there are some pretty vivid descriptions of how spiders do their deal. So consider yourself forewarned. Okay. <laughs> so this article is really about sexual size dimorphism in spider, which is where one sex is bigger than the other. And this mm. isn't too much out of the ordinary. 
ordinary. You can think of a massive male orangutan or like huge bull elephant seal males that generally are much bigger than their like harem wives. <laughs> and a lot of other types of insects and terrestrial arthropods have large females because a bigger body can produce more eggs. Right. But yeah. spiders actually beat everybody. The female spider can actually be up to three to ten times the size of males, and sometimes even more. And yeah, so this is the world of ESSD, which is not a modern solid state drive. This is extreme (laughs) sexual size dimorphism. (laughs) I love it when an acronym stands for something just completely logical. It's like, no, the E is for extreme. That's like. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And also it's it's notable that the E is lowercase in this article. So it's like trendy too. Nice. Um, So one of the notorious consequences of these huge discrepancies is cannibalism. Mm. Uh, Giant female spiders that sit in their webs waiting to be wooed are the literal definition of femme fatales (laughs) prone to snacking on their suitors before, during, or after copulation. And they don't just get a half-decent dinner out of it, but also get to control who gets to mate with them and who doesn't. Yeah, I was going to say, after makes sense, but during is just rude. Like, I mean, come on. So less familiar actually is though the amazing repertoire of male behaviors in these species which are all aimed at enhancing paternity (laughs) so arachnologist jonathan coddington says that sex in animals can be weird but this is really weird it's like a soap opera (laughs) spider sex is unique even leaving aside the extreme size differences for instance mature males will squirt their sperm onto a tiny sperm web then siphon up the sperm into appendages on the sides of their heads for storage until mating. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So in females, these appendages called pedipalps are leg-like structures used to prod and probe prey, but in males, the tips are transformed into these sperm delivery organs. So I'm not going to elaborate on that. Uh, During... So during copulation, the male will insert one palp into an opening in the female's abdomen and just pump in sperm. And if he gets the chance, he'll even insert his second palp into the female's other opening. And there, the sperm and that of any subsequent successful male is just stored in pouches called spermathicae until the female begins to lay eggs. At which point, the sperm gets activated and travels into the egg-laying canal and fertilizes the eggs. So they kind of have a built-in egg-slash-sperm freezing system. They can successfully start careers in tech, you know, all that stuff. (laughs) I mean, that's a pretty extensive shelf life. It can hang out for a while in the male, then it can hang out for a while in the female. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's doing pretty good. And, and, you know, props to the female for deciding when it's actually time to get pregnant, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) A little bit of choice in the spider world, okay. But also not with those, you know, things going right into her abdomen, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but she's going to eat him, it's fine. She, like, he's not (laughs) going to make it. (laughs) Just as nature intended. (laughs) Yeah, so Slovenian spider specialist Matras Kuntner of the National Institute of Biology in Ljubljana says that evolution has taken care of things so the genitals of gigantic females are actually relatively small and those of small males are relatively large. The real problem is surviving long enough to finish copulation and fertilize all or most of the female's eggs. 
Male orb weavers approach with caution from behind, keeping as far from female jaws as possible. <laughs> and in many species, males pick a time of least peril if they get the chance, which is usually when the female is either already eating or when she's molting for the last time before adulthood, because molting females can't actually attack until their soft new exoskeletons harden. Mm. German zoologist Gabrielle Yule at the University of Greifswald checked how well this strategy serves the black and yellow striped wasp spider. In lab studies, 97% of males that mated with a soft molting female survived, compared with 20% that tried to mate with a hardened one. What's more, mating a still soft female allowed males to copulate for longer and gave them the option of emptying both palps or trying their luck with a second mate. So it's hard to know how common this is among other spiders, though, because molting happens really fast. And researchers would have to stay up all night to observe it. I mean, it makes sense because she's basically naked, right? She's just taken off her sexy spider mm -hmm. robe and now she's vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think I think that's an apt metaphor. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) uh, some males do resort to foreplay or soothing gestures when danger (laughs) looms. Um, (laughs) I'm going to use the phrase soothing gestures from now on. Like, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) so if the female giant golden orb weaver breaks off mating which is a very bad sign the male actually binds her with silken threads and they aren't strong enough to immobilize her but it's more like a caressing action which relaxes her enough to resume mating spider shibori (laughs) yeah (laughs) it also explains why darwin's bark spider actually performs oral sex by salivating on the female's genitals before copulation. Oh my god! Um, Yeah. So this is recently discovered behavior that's only been observed in that particular species, but researchers suspect it could be widespread. Then there's also the sensible, if impossible sounding strategy of remote copulation. Uh, Uh, Spiders are also preparing for COVID. And... uh, It's not exactly what it sounds like. It's demonstrated by the Asian hermit spider. And what happens is that when danger threatens, the male will actually snap off his pedipalp and make his escape and leave the palps behind to pump sperm without him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The team also found that these eunuch males are more agile, superior fighters, and better able to guard their mate. So they really just like go all in. I did my job. Now I don't need that anymore. Let's fight. (laughs) Awesome. So not all of these genital plugs work, however, and uh, (laughs) Coddington says that they've actually found females with eight or more stuck inside of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some spider males will sacrifice more than just their genitals, like positively encouraging the female to eat them because it buys them time to complete copulation. The male redback (laughs) spider will perform a suicidal somersault once he's finished his first copulation, actually twisting his body around until the abdomen rests on the female's fangs (gasps) and as she begins to eat his rear end first he carries on copulating inserting his second palp to deliver the remainder (laughs) of the sperm okay yeah i mean it's dedication you got to admire it (laughs) yeah wow as spectacular as all this is this extreme sexual size dimorphism or essd is rare even in spiders and kuntner says that it's an aberration He and Coddington describe in the annual review of entomology that close examination of the evolutionary history of spiders indicates that ESSD has evolved at least 16 times, and in one major group, some lineages have repeatedly lost it and regained it. There isn't really a single simple explanation for why this happens, 
and it's probably the consequence of several possibly opposing selective forces acting on each sex independently, whether that's natural selection, conflict between males and females, and ecological factors all probably contribute. Hmm. Unfortunately, there's another twist to the story, which is that spiders with these extreme size differences might actually just be heading for extinction. Kuttner says that being a giantess has advantages, but also carries risks. Smaller spiders will infest the huge webs of outsized females and steal food. And Coddington says that in ecological time spans, they're likely sucked into a strategy that looks like a good idea, but predisposes them to extinction. Yeah, I was thinking about becoming a giantess because you made it sound so fun. But now I guess I'm not so sure. (laughs) Yeah. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, I may be about to reveal my age here, but have you guys seen the relatively recent kids movie Big Hero 6? Yes. Yeah. All right. Good. So I'm not alone. All right. Because I figured only people (laughs) with older children would have seen it. But all right. Good. No way. It's a great. Listen, I am a big fan of all of the CGI movies in part because they take so dang long to complete that the writing is going to be solid. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so then you will remember the little tiny kind of trapezoidal bots that work together and, you know, whoever had on the special headband could control them or whatever. Right, Right. Well, it turns out. Those are actually kind of real. Huh? Yeah. So this comes from IEEE.org. It's titled Metal Spheres Swarm Together to Create Freeform Modular Robots. And this week at the International Conference on Intelligent Robots, or IROS, which is presumably the official name of the conference is in a different language. Otherwise, that acronym makes no sense. But a research team from the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Shenzhen, led by Tin Lun Lam, is presenting a a new take, basically, on the modular robot concept that focuses on the connectivity problem, which is namely, how do you get the robots to stick to each other or release on command without this kind of unified connectivity system, right? Because if you can control them all with one system, that's fine. But how do you get each one to behave independently? Mm -hmm. So previous modular robot prototypes have focused on either the reconfigurability or the swarm behavior. So reconfigurable systems have no independence. They're just like kind of robot Legos that you can manually arrange to suit your needs. Whereas swarm robots have independence, like you imagine a cloud of tiny drones, but they're only really useful in a blunt force kind of way. They're not really Mm -hmm. working together. They're just all doing the same thing a lot. But Mm -hmm. this new design is truly independent and truly combines to make something greater than the individual parts. So LAM's modular robots are basically iron spheres with a little robotic car inside. So it's kind of like a hamster ball. When the wheels turn, the ball rolls in whatever direction the car wants to go. And then in addition, the key part is that the internal car has an electromagnet on its undercarriage. And when it's activated, it's strong enough to pass through the iron shell and magnetically attach to the iron robot next to it. Then once it's connected, it can start driving again while still connected and basically roll up the side of the next sphere or climb on top of it or do whatever it wants. And they have videos of these things working. And on the one hand, they're clearly a prototype. But on the other hand, they're really amazing. Like they just take this ball and give it, stick it to a vertical wall and it just rolls right up the wall. Or it can build a little structure that juts out perpendicularly. The magnets are really strong. They also show two of the spheres working together to climb up a set of stairs that isn't made of metal. So it's kind of like giving someone a boost over a wall. The second ball rolls up the first one. And then the first one kind of pulls itself up over the second one. And they go up a flight of stairs. It's amazing. Hmm. There are some limitations to the current design. It is Mm -hmm. battery powered, so recharging would be an issue. And currently, they have no autonomous AI. They're just following commands by remote control. But 
They have a video simulating the physics of what you could do if you had a bunch of these things that all had really smart AI. And it kind of looks like a rolling blob that can just sort of go up and over even these really complicated surfaces. So I I feel like we're not that far away from a giant tidal wave uh, held by a mastermind villain. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this was also, I think, in, what was it, the Spider-Man Far From Home, where he goes to Europe and they have, like, those little bots that basically have hollow projectors so that they can create, like, I mean, we've been calling this in sci-fi for a while now. Mm -hmm. Well, and sci-fi is the ultimate predictor of what we're going to get eventually, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, for one, welcome our new little modular robot overlords. Yeah, well... Or underlings, depending. Right. And that's the other thing is right now they're the size of a grapefruit. So they don't look as threatening. I can imagine if they were much smaller, they'd be much more frightening. But right now they're just like big old, I don't know, what's the size, what's a sports analogy to a grapefruit? Baseball? Yeah, it's like it's like balls? bigger than a baseball, softball. There you go. It's about the size of a softball. Yeah. You can tell I played sports as a child. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Discover Magazine asks an interesting question in this article. Why did carnivorous plants become meat eaters? Because it's tasty. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so we all know about the Venus flytrap, queen of the carnivorous plants. And when it needs nutrients, the fleshy looking insides of its clamp grow bright red and they emit this fruity scent that's meant to lure in insects. And a bug that falls for the bait will land and then move tiny hairs that line the red tissue. And what a team found is that it takes only two hair movements to make the Venus flytrap's mouth close. Mm. Once four hairs are moved, the plant starts to churn out digestive juices. So basically, it means that the plant is waiting for the victim to struggle until it knows for sure it has a (laughs) snack to devour. It's got to be big and live and interesting to eat. Yeah, exactly. It's got to move around and have a little disco in its mouth. And only then does the mouth transform into a stomach and intestine which digests the prey and sends the nutrients back into the plant. Other carnivorous species are not as flashy as the Venus flytrap, but they have their own techniques, like the pitcher plants that grow leaves that wrap into an upside-down oboe shape and just wait for prey to fall into the cup. There are some butterwort species that line flat leaves with a sticky fluid that glues the prey into place before surging in enzymes to break it down. And there are some plants that even prefer poop. (laughs) There's a whole slew of carnivorous plants that rely on what their companion animals excrete. For example, there are some tree shrews in Borneo that relieve themselves in the same pitcher plant they occasionally snack on. The feces from shrews and other species are rich in nitrogen, which is one of the elements that these plants might be particularly desperate for. Hmm. As far as where they came from, DNA analysis shows that genes that help other plants protect themselves from predation also function to detect and digest prey in carnivorous plants. They kind of turn the table. So in non-carnivorous plants, when an insect eats or bites part of the plant, the plant ramps up a production of a hormone that regulates repair and defense, right? Something chomps on you. It's like, ah, I've got to fix the problem. But in Venus flytraps, when the prey move two of those separate hairs, the same hormone skyrockets and tells the plants to start assembling digestive fluids. So it literally has evolved to go from defense to offense. Hmm. Hmm. And though researchers have an idea of when carnivorous plants started to appear and what kind of qualities they adopted, which traits appeared first is still kind of unclear. Some carnivorous species tend to be genetically similar to one another. A single genus, a group of relatives might be entirely of carnivorous plants. 
but the absence of close relative plants that didn't make the jump to this unusual kind of nutrient gathering makes it harder to tell where the family tree, you know, the carnivorous traits kind of appeared. What an evolutionary step that has many biologists puzzled is where the pitcher plant leaf shape came from. They have no clue. <laughs> They're still doing some studies. They're hoping carnivorous plants can show them how action potentials evolved. These electrical signals are how muscle and nerve cells communicate in people and animals. And if plants can do it too, then maybe their slower action potentials indicate where the translational method came from. <laughs> the article notes at the end, whatever happened in these ancient animal eating plants, the skills they developed are impressive. After all, the genetic source of their abilities is pretty simple. Quote, carnivorous plants built on what a stupid cabbage already has. <laughs> Those stupid cabbages. I, I know. Uh, Way to burn the non-carnivorous plants in this article, guys. Yeah, that feels very judgmental. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I had some cabbage the other day. It was pretty dumb. <laughs> You know, but they wreak their own kind of uh, defense on our digestive system with gas alone, though, right? The brassicas are famous true. for that. That's right. They're fighting yeah. back. They, they might be smarter than we think. <laughs> My main takeaway from this article is that if I ever somehow fall into a giant human-sized Venus flytrap, just don't struggle. Yeah. Just stay still. Mm -hmm. Hope I roll out or something. <laughs> um. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This one also comes to us from discovermagazine.com. It is titled, The Earth is Pulsating Every 26 Seconds, and Seismologists Don't Agree Why. Ooh. Yeah. So every 26 seconds, the Earth shakes. And not a lot. It's not enough that you'd feel it. But this pulse or microseism in geologist lingo was first documented in the early 1960s by a researcher named Jack Oliver at the Lamont Doherty Geological Observatory. And he figured out that the pulse was coming from somewhere in the southern or equatorial Atlantic Ocean and that it was stronger in the northern hemisphere's summer months or in the southern hemisphere's winter. Hmm. So Mike Ritzwaller, a seismologist at the University of Colorado Boulder, explains that Jack didn't have the resources in 1962 that we had in 2005. He didn't have digital seismometers. He was dealing with paper records. Whereas in 1980, Gary Holcomb, a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, looked more closely at the weird microseism and figured out that it's strongest during storms. But his and Oliver's work would mostly be lost to time while this seismic drumbeat would just keep going on unnoticed beneath our feet. So one day in 2005, then-graduate student Greg Benson was working with seismic data at his lab at the University of Colorado Boulder. And as Ritzwaller explains it, Benson pulled up some data, and there it was, a strong signal coming from somewhere far off. Hmm. And they were actually able to triangulate the pulse to its origin, which was a single source in the Gulf of Guinea off the western coast of Africa. Fast forward six years, when another graduate student, Garrett Euler, came along, he narrowed down the source of the pulse even more to a part of the Gulf of Guinea called the Bite of Bonnie. And he made a case for why waves hitting the coast were most likely the cause. So... When waves travel across the ocean, the pressure difference in the water might not have a ton of effect on the ocean floor, but when it hits the continental shelf, where the solid ground is much closer to the surface, the pressure actually deforms the ocean floor and causes seismic pulses that reflect the wave action. But nearly 60 years after the pulse was first observed, no one has really managed to figure it out, and that might be just because as far as seismologists are concerned, it's just not really a priority. 
apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not until we figure out that it's a major cause for XYZ disaster and <laughs> it's been there warning us all this time. That's right. right, yeah. Or it turns out that this is technically the Earth's heartbeat and it's a sentient being, blah, blah, yeah. blah. It's slowing down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Ritzwaller says that it doesn't mean that this isn't worth studying, though, and it may just be up to future generations of students, supposedly grad students, I'd assume, <laughs> And to Uh truly, yeah, exactly. (laughs) To truly unlock these great enigmas. And then not get credited for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this article did a pretty good job of name dropping some grad students. I was impressed by that. Super fair. And including a quote by someone who's essentially gatekeeping meteorology. Right, right. right. Uh huh. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one comes to us from Gizmodo. It's a medical oddity. So a report published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine last week told the story of a 34-year-old man from Colorado who arrived in the ER suffering from an apparent allergic reaction, right? So pretty typical. He had all the classic signs, hives, anaphylaxis, swelling. Sure enough, they injected him with an EpiPen, gave him some antihistamines. His body started to calm down. Everything was fine. But the real mystery began when they started searching for what it was that he was allergic to. The man's family Mm -hmm. said that he hadn't eaten or been exposed to anything. And then, in fact, the attack had come out of nowhere just as he'd stepped out of a hot shower. Hmm. Doctors were skeptical, but the man and his family kept insisting that he had a history of being allergic to cold. So the doctors did a test, thinking, I'm sure that they were only doing this to prove these crazy people wrong. Right. Humor them. Yeah. They placed an ice cube on the man's forearm. And sure enough, he broke out in hives right where the ice cube (gasps) had touched his skin and his airways started swelling up again. So uh, they went back and did some research. And it turns out this is a rare but very real condition of being (gasps) allergic to the cold. Uh, Researchers have just recently identified at least one gene that makes people more susceptible to the condition, but it doesn't account for all cases. They really still don't know a whole lot about it. One of the key features is that it's not necessarily triggered by the raw temperature number, but rather a sudden change in temperature. So, for Mm. example, jumping into a cold lake or stepping out of a hot shower, Mm -hmm. it usually doesn't appear until early adulthood. And in fact, the man from Colorado said he first started experiencing symptoms only after he moved to Colorado from his tropical home country of Micronesia. That was literally going to be my guess. Why isn't this dude near the equator then? Well, yeah. So he moved here, I guess, for family, and then he's just decided to put up with it. And in fact, his symptoms up to this point had been pretty mild. It was just like he got hives every winter. It's like, okay, whatever. It was only this time stepping out of the shower that anaphylaxis ever became involved. Yeah. The good news is it's entirely treatable, just like any severe allergy. He just has to keep taking antihistamines during his allergy season, which for him is all of winter, more like (laughs) nine months in Colorado. And he has to carry an EpiPen from now on in case he has a severe reaction. But this was just, it makes me so frustrated that the human body can just be dumb in so many dangerous ways. <laughs> like the, and then it can get worse. Like the nature yeah. of allergies, like you would think that continued exposure trains your body to respond to it in such a way, but ultimately it's just like the body's like, I just can't do it anymore. That's right. I'm getting mad. Quit putting me in hot showers. <laughs> and, you know, I, it makes you just start to wonder, well, if you can be allergic to cold, what else can you be allergic to? I used to know a guy who swore I mean, to me that he was yeah. allergic to his own sweat. 
And we all thought, like, oh, is he just trying to get out of doing any kind of hard labor? But it really was. Anytime he would start sweating, he would get these horrible rashes on his forearms and stuff. Well, now I'm kind of regretting. One of the articles I did not choose to read in my batch was about (laughs) why allergies are on the rise. And it mentioned, just as, like, a hyperlink, there is a woman who is allergic to water. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even her own sweat creates a painful, swollen, intensely itchy rash. So, I know, right? Like, that's not a survival technique. That's, like, I mean... (laughs) That's something short-circuiting in a way that yeah. we need to fix. Yeah, but then they also don't show up until you're much older. You've already had kids. Like, this This is not... Humans are destined to die out, I think. We're... <laughs> <laughs> Our own bodies are mutinying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, speaking of water, The Guardian is pleased to report that water exists on the moon. Oh, yay. I was so happy to hear about this. I know, right? And it has some really interesting implications for future lunar missions. It had always been assumed that the moon's surface was dry due to the fact that it has no significant atmosphere that insulates it from the sun's rays. Mm. But in the 1990s, when orbiting spacecraft found indications of ice in large and inaccessible craters near the moon's poles, started to change the thinking. Then in 2009, there were some imaging spectrometers on board India's Chandrayaan-1 spacecraft, and they recorded signatures consistent with water and light reflecting off the moon's surface. But the technological limitations meant it was impossible to know if this was really H2O, water, or hydroxyl molecules consisting of one oxygen atom and one hydrogen atom Mm. in minerals. But now, Casey Honnebal at NASA's ASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, they've detected that a chemical signature that is unambiguously H2O by measuring the wavelengths of sunlight reflecting off the moon's surface. The data was gathered by the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy that has the charming acronym SOFIA, Mm. which is Mm. a modified Boeing 747 that carries a 2.7 meter reflecting telescope. The water that we've recently discovered was found at high latitudes towards the moon's south pole in abundances of about 100 to 400 parts per million H2O. Mahesh Anad explains that this is actually quite a lot. (laughs) He's a professor of planetary science and exploration at the Open University in Milton Keys. Quote, it is about as much as is dissolved in the lava flowing out of the Earth's mid-ocean ridges, which could be harvested to make liquid water under the right temperatures and pressure conditions. Which seems kind of incidental, but it's still water. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't (laughs) that doesn't help me understand how much water it is at all. That's like such a, <laughs> such a scientific analogy. They're like, oh, it's just as much water as in lava. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Is that awesome? And not just lava, but the lava under right, the ocean. Right, not that right, stupid right. land lava. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and my, you know, layman's scientific understanding of lava is that's mostly molten rock. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. I- but the existence of water and, and whatever quantity that we can understand in our own humble little brains... <laughs> does have implications for future lunar missions because it could be treated and used for drinking. It could be separated into hydrogen and oxygen for use as rocket propellant, and the oxygen could be used for breathing. Anand notes, water is a very expensive commodity in space. Don't we know it? Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. harvesting the water from the dark, steep-walled craters where the temperature rarely climbs above negative 230 Celsius. I'm not even going to do the calculation Fahrenheit because, you know, the number is just going to be even more ridiculous. (laughs) And this is where the bulk of any frozen water was assumed to lie. This is going to be a perilous undertaking, Mm. right? If it turns out that there is a lot of water in these non-permanently shadowed areas 
then that is potentially a very large area and it is accessible because it has sunlight. But, you know, like a lot of scientific discoveries, we still have questions. <laughs> One is in the form in which the water exists, right? One possibility is that it dissolved within lunar glass created when meteorites hit the moon's surface, or tiny ice crystals could be distributed between grains of lunar soil. If it is the lunar soil manifestation, that would be far easier to extract. We also have questions about how deep this newly confirmed water source extends. So if it's restricted to the uppermost few microns or millimeters, mm. then the practical significance is minimal, although it would still beg questions about how it got there. So mm. to answer these questions, the only real way to find out is to go to the moon and start drilling. Right. Mm. Time to go back. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. This may not be far off. The Artemis mission from NASA plans to send a male and female astronaut to the moon by 2024 fingers crossed. <laughs> British scientists are also developing a robotic drill to take samples of lunar soil from depths of up to a meter as part of a Russian mission scheduled for 2025. Exploration of the moon that should be established for peaceful purposes, <laughs> says Christopher Newman, professor of space law and policy of Northumbria University in Newcastle. But we'll see because other signatories are expected, although Russia is hesitant and China is prevented from signing because of ongoing trade disputes with the U.S. Yeah. So. TBD, y'all. That's a cool job title. Professor of Space Law and Policy. Like, I, right? that sounds amazing. I want that job. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to get started in real estate law first. Ooh, oh, never mind. Not gonna <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> I have to say, total speculation. this is exciting, but it also is a little disappointing because what it means is we're going to stop getting all of those awesome how to astronauts recycle their pee articles. Like, they're not going to have to do that anymore. It's a disappointment. <laughs> well, depending on how much we have, we always know there's always going to be more pee as long That's as there true. are humans. There's right? always more pee. Yeah. And I mean, we still don't have solutions for going out to Mars. That's so. true. There's always right. pee on Mars. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. There are many articles on Damn Interesting that we did not get a chance to talk about. Some of those articles include NASA's Galaxy of Horrors poster series, time cells discovered in human brains, and red dwarfs may be more hazardous to one's health than previously thought. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast and keep us going, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.